As Trevor said, my name is Emilio, and I have the privilege of serving here as the youth ministry director. And, and when I say that, I mean it. It truly is a privilege to get to work with uh, our high school, middle school, and, and fourth and fifth grade friends. But if I could for just a moment be honest with you, there was a season not long ago where I doubted I would be here. There was a season not long ago where I doubted I would have the opportunity to, to preach from the pulpit. A season where I began to doubt my call to even serve the bride of Christ, his church. A season where I didn't believe that I was smart enough or sharp enough or good enough or even worthy enough to be here. You see, in a, in a beautiful way, our church and, and our denomination doesn't just let anybody preach from the pulpit. There's a vetting system that includes tests, a lot of tests. And as my parents could attest to, I did not attest well growing up. But they, to, to preach on any type of regular basis, you have to be tested on things like Bible knowledge and, and theology, which are, are great things to, to know about. So when someone comes to preach the word of God at this church, you, you know, they know what they're talking about. So to be licensed, you would have to take a written exam, which would take anywhere between six to eight hours, followed by an oral exam, which would take anywhere between one to two hours. And if you pass that, you get to come to the floor of a presbytery meeting where you got to be examined by 50 people smarter than you. It's awesome. <laughs> and prior to moving here to, to Durham, I was at a church in, in Metro Atlanta, and I was in this process of, of licensure. I was in the process of taking tests, and I, I took the written exam, and, and did well enough to be invited into the oral exam. And when I got there, the, the credentials committee would ask me questions and after a couple of hours, determined that I wasn't quite ready to come to the floor. That my answers weren't quite sharp enough as they would have liked. Not that I didn't know what I needed to know in regards to Bible or theology, but it wasn't quite sharp enough. And, and to be honest, I'm grateful for those brothers because I wasn't ready. But I did begin to believe the lies, the lies that I was not sharp enough, that I was not good enough, that I was not smart enough, and that maybe I wasn't even being called to serve God's church. And the danger in this doubt is that not only was I doubting myself, but I began to doubt God. Church, I tell you this this morning because I wonder if if you understand where I'm coming from. I wonder if maybe there are areas in your life where you feel doubt creeping in around you. I wonder if this morning you've come in questioning whether or not you're at the right job or if maybe you're being called somewhere else. I wonder if this morning you've come in and you're doubting whether or not you made the right choice in regards to college or grad school. I wonder if you've come in this morning doubting if you're gonna be able to make the right friends at school or, or make the right team I wonder if this morning you've come in doubting your marriage, your singleness, your ability to, to raise kids. I wonder if maybe you've even been caught with doubt's good friend comparison. If you've come in this morning saying, if I only had that person's life or what that person has, everything would be better. See, doubt and comparison have a way of crippling us. 
They have a way of destroying even good things if we allow them to because those things that I mentioned are good. Our, our call from God is good. Marriage and singleness are good. Raising kids are good. Being a part of a team is good. College is good. Those are all good things. But our sin-filled, broken, comparing, doubting hearts attempt to destroy that which God intended for good. But the good news of the gospel is that for those of us who struggle in our doubt, Christ meets us right there. We're going to continue our series this morning called Resurrection Stories. In our text this morning, we're going to spend time with the disciples in the first week after the resurrection of Jesus, zeroing in on the Apostle Thomas. And we'll spend time talking about doubt and how the resurrected Christ meets us where we are personally and in his house. If you look in the bulletin, it says that we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. We're actually going to start in chapter 24. I messaged Bradley this morning. I said, take out 19 through 23, please. But if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we hear from God's word. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you meet us here this morning. That you meet us here in your church. That you meet us in your word. And that you meet us where we are. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Context is, is important. And so this passage, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the events post-resurrection. Our, our text in John comes after Mary Magdalene had first visited the tomb. And then seeing the stone rolled away, ran to go get the other disciples. Our text comes after Peter and John race in what I believe is the greatest race of the first century. Where the apostle John lets everybody know for all of eternity that he is faster than Peter. <laughs> Our text comes after everyone just leaves the tomb. Everyone except for Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is there and, and after an encounter with two angels, she sees Jesus, but perceives him to be the gardener. And it's not until Jesus says her name that she realizes who that is. Because there's nobody who says her name the way that Jesus does. 
This scene, I believe, sets the tone for what Jesus would do in the passage that we just read this morning. But truly, I believe it sets the tone for what Jesus does today because when Jesus calls you by name and when Jesus turns his attention to you, you cannot help but turn to him. So later that evening, the evening of the first Easter, Jesus finally appears to the disciples. The doors are locked because the disciples are are scared that the people, that the crowd, the religious leaders, the Romans would be coming after them. But Jesus appears anyway, says, peace be with you. As Pastor Daniel talked about a couple of weeks ago, this greeting may have come as a surprise to the disciples because they had just scattered. They had just left and deserted him, some denying even knowing him. But regardless, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. And if you were to read in your bulletin, you would know that he says it not once, but twice. Peace be with you. The first time he would say it, then he showed them his hands and his side, and they were overcome with joy. Then he would say it a second time. And he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus, in this moment, this great commission, having breathed onto them the Holy Spirit, would send them all out. Almost all of them. Because as we know from the text we read, Thomas is not there with them. Verse 24 and 25 say this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Church, there's power in a nickname, isn't there? I'm gonna confess to you that in preparation for this sermon, I spent a lot of time in commentaries and I was hoping that one of these brothers would let me know why Thomas was called the twin. That there's gonna be some deep meaning as to why. And here's what I gathered, that Thomas was probably a twin. (laughs) But that's not the nickname that Thomas is known for, is it? Because of the text that we just read throughout history, Thomas, is known as Doubting Thomas. There's power in a nickname. Nicknames can have the ability to tell others about who you are. Michael Air Jordan for his ability to seemingly defy gravity on his way to the rim. But nicknames also have the power to seemingly haunt you as well. I remember the first day of school when I was in sixth grade, I was sitting by this really cute girl. And I was trying to muster up the strength to to say anything to her. And before I could, she did. And she asked me a question. She says, what's your name? So I smile and I tell her, my name's Emilio. And her response to my answer changed my life. Because she just looked at me and she said, I can't pronounce that. (laughs) And so she said, I'll call you Elmo. And so Elmo became my nickname in middle school. I would walk in the halls and people would yell, Elmo, and I would smile and I would laugh. I even learned his annoying laugh. That, <laughs> that, like, I, I took the time. But church, it wasn't until about five years ago that I recognized and truly realized the damage that nickname did on me. Because I was telling my mom that story. And she said, oh, well, that makes sense. I said, mom, what do you mean? She goes, Emilio, that's about the time you stopped speaking Spanish around the house. 
See, that nickname haunted me, and because of it, I tried to be less Latino, tried to be less of who God had created me to be. Nicknames can tell others about who you are, like being called twin, but they can haunt you, like being called doubting Thomas. But what a nickname cannot do is that it cannot define you. Because Thomas is not defined by his doubt. He is defined by Jesus. And to Thomas's credit, he has shown up at the house where the disciples were meeting. And I'm sure it would have been easy in his pain and his doubt to, to not show up, doubting what the others were saying was true. In his pain and his hurting, he, he's hurting because his friend, because his, his hope had been killed. And this pain was now presenting itself as resistance and doubt. I wonder how many of us in here this morning are resisting and doubting because of a pain we've dealt with or are dealing with in our lives. It would have been easy for Thomas to skip out on communing, on being with his brothers. I know it would have been easy because sometimes I, I don't want to show up to church. I don't want to be around my church family. I don't want to be here worshiping Jesus with you. I want to lay around on my couch in my doubt, in my hurt, but I don't. I get up, I show up, and here's why. Because I believe this truth that in our doubt, Jesus meets us in his house. We know that Jesus has shown up and showed the disciples not named Thomas, his hands inside. And we know that when Thomas finally shows up and the disciples tell him about it, that, that he does not believe them, saying, unless I touch the marks in his hand, unless I see them, unless I put my hand on his side, I will never believe. But again, there's a beauty in the truth that Thomas showed up. In his pain, in his doubt, in his hurting, in his sadness, Thomas shows up. And we know he shows up again the next week. Because the first half of verse 26 says, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. On the first Sunday after Easter, after a week of hearing about the risen Jesus, after a week of wrestling with his own thoughts and doubts, Thomas showed up on Sunday. One commentary I read in regards to them gathering eight days or one week later said that this may be a subtle illusion to the origins of Christian worship on that particular day. Thomas came on Sunday, the Lord's day. He comes to the house where the Lord had been and would be. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. 26 finishes by saying, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Dale Bruner in his commentary says that Jesus stood right in the middle of his disciples on his first Easter too, and he stands right in the middle now again on the second Easter. Isn't Jesus by this location and the evangelist by this reportage seeking to teach us the place that Jesus should occupy in our meetings and in our lives? See, I believe this to be true that Jesus is central here in our services. That Jesus, through the reading and preaching and hearing of his word, through worship, through prayer, through the sacraments, is central in our Sunday mornings. He has to be central. And I pray that he'll be central in our lives as well. Because church, I don't believe it's coincidence that for a third time, John tells us that Jesus' greetings to the, to the disciples, his greeting to Thomas is peace be with you. Because I believe it's a reminder that when Jesus is central in your life, that peace in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, 
is with you. This is not to say that you can't come with your doubt, that you can't come or show up to church with your fear, anxiety, or stress, or that all that will suddenly go away. But I believe that it means that when you show up to his house, that he will show up as well. Peace be with you. For us, when we're in a place where we are doubting and comparing, when we're anxious, depressed, fearful, or sad, there's no better place to go than where he is. There's no better place than his church. In our doubt, Jesus meets us in his house. And in our doubt, Jesus meets us where we are. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. We don't know exactly how Jesus knew of Thomas's doubt. We don't know how he, how he knew exactly of what Thomas even said. It's possible that the disciples at some other point during the week would have told him. Of course, Jesus being the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, probably already knew. But regardless, he knew. He was very much aware of Thomas's doubt. But did you catch that Jesus did not fuss at Thomas or condemn him or was angry at him or judge him, Thomas in his doubt was met by Jesus with love. Jesus showed Thomas mercy. In Thomas's doubt and unbelief, Jesus meets him where he is. And Jesus not only meets him where he is, but Jesus meets him with this mercy in this moment. Jesus does not owe Thomas anything because he has just given Thomas everything. Through his death and resurrection, he has provided access to the Father. He's provided access to the kingdom. He doesn't owe Thomas anything yet in this moment. In this moment, Jesus shows grace and mercy in that immediately after showing up, he turns to Thomas and says, put your fingers here. Put your hand here. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Jesus in grace and mercy shows Thomas exactly what he wanted and maybe even needed to see. Dale Bruner says that Thomas required physical verification. Jesus offers physical verification. We do not know that Jesus meets every doubter so specifically. We do know that he met this doubter this way. Honest doubt is something the risen Jesus clearly honors. I had a student in my ministry a few years ago who was wrestling with doubt. And worse, he was told by someone close to him that because he doubted, it was obvious that he wasn't a believer. And this sent my friend in a downward spiral where he quit showing up to church or to youth group or to a small group. And finally, he, I reached out to him and, and kind of asked where he was and we met and we talked and he shared where he was and, and I encouraged him by saying, telling him where I'd seen Jesus, where I'd seen fruit in his life. But more than that, I encouraged him to come back to church, to spend time with Jesus in the word and in prayer. And so he did. And Jesus in his tender mercy met my friend there in his word and he met my friend in his doubt. And like I said earlier, when Jesus meets you and he turns his attention to you, you cannot help but turn to him. And my friend couldn't help but turn to him. He spent time with Jesus and is still spending time with Jesus. Sometimes he still has questions, he still doubts. He called me a few weeks ago, not knowing that I was preaching this sermon with questions. He called me with questions, but the good news is that he knows where to go and to whom to go. And friends, it's not to me, 
He goes to Jesus. And this summer, my friend will be a keynote speaker at Rush Conference, a student conference that Central Youth is attending this summer in Atlanta. Our doubt doesn't mean that we don't believe, but that we have questions. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, has answers. He answers Thomas's questions, and Jesus, in grace and mercy, does the same for us. If we're doubting our call, Jesus will meet us. If we're doubting our circumstances, Jesus will meet us. If we're doubting him, Jesus will meet us. And our response, I pray, will be and should be the same as Thomas's, where he answers in verse 28, my Lord and my God. There's no reason to believe that Thomas took up Jesus' request to actually touch his hands or his side. When Jesus turns to him and meets him in his doubt, meets him where he is, it is enough for Thomas to profoundly confess whom Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And like Thomas, our response to Christ meeting us should be nothing short of amazement. Not amazement because of what he has done, amazement because of who he is, my Lord and my God, who in love was crucified, who in love was buried, who in love was resurrected, my Lord and my God who mercifully in love meets me where I am. And when Jesus meets us where we are, we can confess and remind ourselves of who he is, my Lord and my God, who is central here in the church and who is central in our lives as well. I shared with you about my doubt in regards to my call, and I wrestled and I doubted for years. But I continued to come to church. I continued to worship, to fellowship in a community that encouraged me and would point me to the truth. And most importantly, Jesus met me in my doubt and allowed me to wrestle with questions about my call, with questions about who he was, but he met me in his word and he met me in prayer. And the more that I prayed and the more that I showed up, the more excited I got about the idea that, that Jesus was calling me. But friends, it wasn't simply that he was calling me to serve his church or calling me to be a husband or a father, but he was calling me to himself. He calls me his beloved. Church, if you're in a season of doubt or you're wrestling, I want you to hear that I believe Jesus will meet you here at church, and exactly where you are as you are. And I don't want to speak and promise that things will change or that you won't have questions or doubts because you very well might, and that is okay. But I believe that Jesus, if you allow him, will meet you right there in it. And I want to close with this. Jesus' words to Thomas, verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus acknowledges Thomas's belief, something that cannot be ignored. He saw the risen Jesus, as did the other apostles, and he believed. And because he believed, because Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit onto him as well as the other disciples, they were changed forever, and our world would be changed forever. Thomas would leave for Asia where he would preach about the resurrected Jesus whom he had seen. The other apostles would spread out like Thomas and share the good news of the resurrected Jesus, saying, my God and my Lord conquered death so that you may have life. 
And Jesus, breathing onto them the Holy Spirit, would inspire them to write the perfect word of God so that we can have it in our hands. And because these spirit-led disciples went and shared the good news of the gospel and wrote of the good news of the gospel, we, those who have not seen, can believe. We have his word, his perfect word in which he meets us. Because Jesus showed Thomas and the other disciples his hands, we have the word of God in ours. And John writes and concludes chapter 20 by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. In our doubt, Jesus meets us with grace and mercy in church and where we are. Why? So that we may believe. So that we may be called blessed. Church, in your doubts, will you show up next Sunday? In your doubts, will you meet Christ in his word? Because again, I believe that he will meet us there. That he'll meet us where we are, as we are. That we may believe that we may proclaim my Lord and my God. Jesus, we praise you this morning because you meet us where we are. You meet us in our doubt, in our stress, in our anxiety, and in our joys. Jesus, thank you that you show up in love and grace and mercy. In your name we pray, amen.